You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Kenway, Toes, Loinin, Two Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Redbeard, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons Clement, Ilya, Matthew, Maxim, sorry I missed you, mate, and Michael. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. For the past few weeks I've asked you to imagine yourself in the shoes of a young French sailor, mostly during the civil unrest of the Fronde. That imaginary sailor was a Huguenot from the coast of France, probably somewhere in his late teens, but I was fairly vague about the specifics. Today we're going to paint a much clearer picture of our sailor, his story, his family, his lifestyle, and his politics. And then a hard left into the King of France's love life, and one woman's influence on our imaginary characters, and all of the pirates. This is episode 148, Femme Fatale. To begin, let's give our sailor a hometown. Maybe not the place of his birth, there are a ton of small towns on the Atlantic coast of France, but his home base. The city of La Rochelle is an important port city in France, even today. It lies on the Bay of Biscay and has long been an important part of France's many naval conflicts with the Spanish. La Rochelle is old, but it's not really old as far as French and European cities in general are reckoned. It doesn't go back to Romano-Gaul, as do many French cities. Atlantic traffic wasn't that important to the Romans. Now, there was some out of Spain, but it was mostly centered in the Mediterranean. But as the Middle Ages marched on, when, say, the Duke of Normandy conquered England, and then a bit later, when France fought the Hundred Years' War, the port of La Rochelle grew in size and importance. And when the Age of Sail arrived, La Rochelle became one of the most important cities in the nation. It was important economically and militarily. However, as a cosmopolitan city, a place that attracted a lot of outside influence, as many port cities do, 
La Rochelle became kind of a center for heretics. During the French Wars of Religion, for example, La Rochelle became almost a capital for Huguenot France. Now, the Edict of Nantes secured for the Huguenots most of the rights that Catholics in France enjoyed. Not all of the rights, but many of them. Beyond that, it granted legal protection for French citizens while traveling abroad from the Inquisition. Perhaps most important to our story, the edict defended La Rochelle's status as a sanctuary city, a city that would accept Protestant refugees from other countries around Europe. Now, the king's support was pretty tepid, admittedly, Mostly, Henry didn't try to stop La Rochelle from being a sanctuary city, but even that was worth something. However, that did make La Rochelle a center of Huguenot power. And in 1630, that did backfire a bit. While the Thirty Years' War was raging in Germany, the Huguenots in La Rochelle revolted against King Louis XIII and Cardinal Richelieu, which I have been pronouncing incorrectly. It's Richelieu, not Richelieu. But of course, that gives us the famous Siege of La Rochelle, in which Richelieu blockaded the city. Our imaginary sailor probably was not alive for the Siege of La Rochelle, but his parents would have been. It's not impossible to imagine a scenario in which our sailor's mother was pregnant with him, where his father was fighting in the war and even killed. That's the kind of thing that would hang over a young man's life. It would inform his decisions and mold his politics. So you come from that Huguenot family. You're not rich or powerful, but you're not serfs either. You're working class, but doing okay. As a Calvinist Protestant, you probably have some anti-monarchist leanings. You might even have some radical Republican ideas, but you're not a philosopher. You're a sailor. Your only real goal is to get out to sea as your father did before you, before he was, of course, tragically killed. Still, that would put you squarely in the pro-Fronde anti-Mazarin camp, and that's how you found yourself, as we discussed, as a member of a ship's crew, sitting in a dockside tavern, toasting the Republican Declaration of the Frondeur. But even with all of that, there's a very good possibility that you would support the new king, the young and handsome and charismatic King Louis XIV. He was just about your age, maybe a couple of years younger, but in the same range. And King Louis was an admirable person, in a way that might be confusing to the modern mind. You know, we measure our potential leaders on how much we would like to have a beer with them. But the people of early modern France, well, they might feel the same way about their local magistrates, but not the king. The king should be having his beers with God, or at the very least with the Pope. He should be glorious and awesome in all of the old-fashioned sense of those words, what Will Durant called the half-unconscious belief and the divine right of kings. And King Louis had that. He had mystique, and he exuded an aura of power. And above all, he had that sense of grandeur. 
but make no mistake, Louis worked hard to keep that image up. Most of the biographers I've read, especially the more modern biographers of King Louis, agree that, well, while he enjoyed the perks of his semi-divine status, he was under no illusion as to the reality of the situation. He was a hard-working executive. He was an administrator, and that was the job he did. But he also took seriously his position as the symbol of heavenly support for his nation, and he worked hard to keep that image up as well. That was Louis's propaganda, while behind the scenes he was doing the less sexy work of politics. But it's possible, even likely, that you and your fellow Huguenot sailors with mild Republican leanings would still have high hopes for the young king. And some of those hopes would have been realized, at least at first. The economy of France was booming to start, and instead of concentrating it all at the very top, which is what would happen later, that economy did trickle down a bit. The very poor continued to be very poor, but the middle class was growing, and you and most of your Huguenot friends were among that group. But even the poor were a bit better off. There were infrastructure improvements and a few social safety nets. Not, you know, a lot. It wasn't a welfare state. People were still starving to death on a large scale, but... There were royal orphanages, and there were corn doles in some of the bigger cities. It was a bit better for everyone. So maybe this King Louis was going to work out, even, potentially, for the Huguenots. From the time in 1661, when Cardinal Mazarin died, from that moment until about 1678, the conclusion of the Franco-Dutch War, when France and Louis stood at the pinnacle of the political and military mountain of Europe. During that whole time, the Edict of Nantes that protected your people stayed firmly in place, and throughout all of that, our Huguenot sailors prospered. So who were these Huguenot sailors from La Rochelle? Much like the Spanish Biscayners, the French privateers in the Bay of Biscay were among the best in the world. These Huguenot sailors would have been aware of the colony of outlaw heretic poacher pirates on the other side of the world, the Bucanyi over in Tortuga, and a few probably thought about making their way over there. A few probably did. News of pirates like Francois Lolonet and Henry Morgan, talk of the Brethren of the Coast and their much more Republican ideals, would have been attractive. But most of the sailors there wouldn't have, at least not until the war began to get really heated. A large number of French nationals sailed west, got their letters of mark, and fought in the war. Now, by that point Tortuga was the hive of scum and villainy with which we are all familiar, just the place that you, a young sailor searching for all kinds of vice, would have loved. But let's look at the makeup of the ships on which most of our Huguenot sailors served. Most 
merchant ships were privately owned family businesses. You know, not the giant multinational East India Company ships, but those who sailed for ports in the Netherlands and England and Spain and Italy and traded goods at every port along the way. That was a small business. Those on board would have been working alongside their brothers and their cousins and their extended family. Your training, your apprenticeship, was probably with your father. Unless he had been tragically killed, then it would be with an uncle or some other close relative. And when your nation went to war, the family had to make a decision. Should you accept a commission and go out privateering? Should you take your ship, which was relatively well-armed, I mean, you had to defend against the Spanish and those Barbary pirates after all, but should you put that ship in harm's way? It was a very real money-making opportunity that most families had to at least consider. Of course, should that ship decide to sail west, they didn't sail with the whole family. They left the younger men behind, a few of the older men behind. They took the hale and healthy in the family. To fill those empty spots, they took some of the rougher sort around town, those who could be found drunk in taverns in the middle of the day, but those who knew how to handle themselves in a fight. Those who usually stayed in a place like Tortuga and went on to become the pirates. Given that information, considering that these ships were a family business more often than not, it probably wasn't that easy to sneak off for a bit of drunken debauchery, if, say, your uncle was looking over your shoulder, unless you had the sort of uncle who was there alongside you. Now, these were privateers. They were not pirates. So upon the war's end, after making a boatload of money, they went home. They took that money and invested it into land and back into the community. It was a good thing for them. Especially since, at this point, most of our privateers, our imaginary Huguenot sailors, were getting a bit older. Those who remembered the Fronde and led many of the privateer vessels during the war were nearing 50 by the end of the Dutch War. Now that's not exactly elderly, but... If they had the money to do so, and many of them earned that money in the war, they stopped sailing. They didn't retire, exactly. They went fishing or did other jobs in the family business, but they sent their sons in their place. Adult sons who, at this point, had small children of their own who stayed there at home with their grandparents. And of course, that's not always how it happened. Life is a complicated mess, but that is a possible or perhaps even typical family cycle for a young mariner born around the end of the Franco-Dutch War, which, remember, was a large international conflict that involved a lot of countries beyond the French and the Dutch, the English, the Spanish, a bunch of Germans. That was the kind of war that saw a lot of men serving far from home for many years who when the war ended, all came back. The early 1680s give us a bit of a baby boom. We're talking about France today, but this was happening in all of the colonial Atlantic powers. Now, the pirates who are going to concern us in the weeks and months to come are from that 
middle generation who are at sea right now. You know, we've met a bunch of them already. Dampier and La de Graff and Ravno de Lusanne and John Reed. Basically everyone in that latter buccaneer era. Their kids, those small children born in that baby boom, well, they're not important yet, but put a pin in that. In everything that's about to happen, they should be in the back of your mind. Remember that all of the big names in Caribbean piracy, Benjamin Hornigold and Edward Teach, Labuse for a French touch, and Anne Bonny and Mary Reed and Calico Jack, all of them, all of the most famous pirates that operated out of Nassau, were born right about 1680, in that post-Franco-Dutch War baby boom. So our privateer Huguenot sailors with Republican leanings, so recently returned from war and relatively flush with cash, were living in what I can only assume was domestic bliss there on the Atlantic coast. I picture the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, my favorite Tarantino movie, only with a seaside vista in the background. And much like that humble but happy home in France in the 1940s, surely nothing bad could ever happen to them. That is, until, naturally, something bad did happen to them. This is the point where we have to switch gears to look at why something bad happened to them. And that, of course, concerns the King of France. Much like our imaginary Huguenots, King Louis was getting older. He was indisputably the most powerful monarch in Europe, but the excess, the beauty of his youth was beginning to fade. The fashion, for example, of wearing one's hair in natural curls was giving way to powdered wigs again. Certainly not because the French king's hair was beginning to gray, and God forbid thin, it was just a coincidence of fashion. The balls and dances once so common in the court were giving way to opera and plays and other activities that allowed the viewers to sit down for a change and, should the need arise, to take a clandestine nap. The wine was watered more and more. The beautiful young women by the king's bedside were replaced by priests, and, even more shocking, replaced by the king's wife. Now, that wife was not Maria Teresa, the Infanta of Spain. That marriage had never been a marriage of love, though Louis did demand that the queen be showed the utmost respect by his court, even, perhaps, especially by his mistresses. However, Maria Theresa died in 1683. She had only given the king one child who lived to adulthood, and that was Louis, le grand dauphin. He wouldn't ever become king, his son would, though, but in that respect, and maybe only in that respect, the union between King Louis and Maria Theresa was a success. But outside of his marriage, we don't know how many lovers Louis had. We don't even know how many children the king had. Gardeners and nurses and chambermaids and cooks and all manner of servants in the Palais Royal had a bunch of illegitimate children. 
Now, of course, they weren't all the king's children. There were a ton of handsome chevaliers in the court, but the king did pay for most of them. At a certain point, those royal orphanages which the king opened were just good financial sense. King Louis's acknowledged mistresses we can name, as well as most of their children. We won't do so, this show can only be so long, but between 1660 and here in the early 1680s, King Louis had at least 15 children with at least six different women. And those were only the women and children worthy of note. Now, most of those children were legitimized and given minor noble titles. Some of them even went on to practice roles in the military or governance of France, and some of them were very successful. But we do need to talk about the last two of Louis' mistresses. They are important to our story. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Do you remember Nell Gwynne? She was that English Protestant actress and mistress of Charles II of England. Admiral Pepys called her pretty, witty Nell. I bring her up here because, in the eyes of many people in England, Nell Gwynne was the proper queen. However, in the eyes of many others in England, Nell Gwynne was evil incarnate, a woman who used her many charms to seduce the king away from what they saw as the righteous path. That's an ancient trope in the Western literary canon. It dates back to well before the Bible, but we see a lot of it in the Bible. It was around this time, a little bit later, but the same era, when in French literature we first see the term for this trope arise, la femme fatale. And very much like Nell Gwynne, King Louis's favorite mistress during the 1670s was 
considered by some the real Queen of France. Now, in her case, it was less because the people liked her and more because of her influence at court. However, unlike Nell Gwynne, Francois Athena, Madame de Montspan, may have earned her reputation as the consummate femme fatale. Montspan was stunningly beautiful. She had big blue eyes and curls that, depending on the light, could shift from amber to auburn. She had fair, smooth skin and, reportedly, cheeks that never needed rouge. In short, Montspan was the kind of woman that, well, she was the kind of woman that looked like she had been designed by a man. And that's to say nothing of her figure, which is the very first thing that everybody who wrote about her mentions. I don't know enough synonyms for the word voluptuous to properly describe her. I mean, there are priests who just met this woman that were suddenly like those cartoon wolves with their eyes bulging out of their skulls. This woman was impressive. And it's hard to say how much of that is the fact that she was a favored mistress of the king. The, I'm going to take a stab in the dark and say, thousands of glowing descriptions of Monspan's beauty might be an attempt to get into the king's good graces, but I don't think they were. I think that this woman was as beautiful as all of the people that wrote about her make her out to be. Now, the Madame de Montspan met King Louis at a ball in 1666. She danced with the king, and she impressed the king. Perhaps, more than anything, what impressed Louis was that she rebuffed his advances. See, the Madame de Montspan was not only beautiful, she was very, very smart, and she was very ambitious. She used her intelligence to ingratiate herself into the court. Monspan's first job at the court was as an attendant to the Queen Mother. However, the Queen Mother recommended her services to a younger woman, the Queen Maria Theresa, who recommended her services to the King's most favored mistress at the time. She worked for the three most powerful women in France, and all of them were deeply impressed with her. The mistress was so impressed that she invited the Madame de Montspan to attend dinners between herself and the king. Imagine Louis's surprise when he shows up to dinner with his mistress and this stunningly beautiful woman who rebuffed his advances a few months earlier was there as well. It didn't take long before the Madame de Montspan had her own chambers in the royal apartments connected to Louise. From that point, it took almost no time before she wielded an, well, a surprising amount of power there in the court. A suspicious amount of power, even. And Louis tried to be gracious to his other women, but it was clear at this point that he was smitten with the Madame de Montspan. The wildest theories about her influence on the king were, well, it wasn't uncommon to hear it said that La Madame de Montspan was a witch, 
a witch who, it is known, regularly engaged in sexual congress with the devil himself. It was also said that her stunning beauty was nothing more than a glamour intended to entice the most Christian monarch into satanic rituals of otherworldly passion. These accusations were, for the most part, brushed off as the erotic fantasies of repressed conspiracy theorists, which is what they were. However, they were given a lot more credence after something that is known as l'affaire des poissons, or the affair of the poisons. That was a scandal that gripped Paris and France at large in a very real terror of witchcraft and unholy power. An aristocratic French woman was accused of murdering her father and two older brothers by means of a deadly poison. That woman confessed to the crime, but she did so under torture, so we can't verify the validity of the confession or of her motives. Most people assumed that the murders were a bid to claim the inheritance from her father that would have gone to her brothers. And had it all ended there, she would have been burned at the stake and forgotten. But before her execution, that aristocratic noblewoman began to name names. She exposed what appears to have been an occult underbelly there in Paris. Now, this sort of thing should not shock us. The aristocracy love this kind of stuff, you know, sex and blood and dark magic. It's all very eyes wide shut. But the investigations that followed that woman's confession uncovered as many as 2,500 alleged murders, at least, you know, suspicious deaths. All of those murders were by poison, and all of them stemmed from a cabal, or let's just call it what it was, a coven of women there in Paris. The two women at the top of that conspiracy, at least the two most prominent women who were accused, had earlier in their lives married merchants who died of suspicious illnesses and passed their fortunes on to their widows. And those widows, those two women and their acolytes, got involved in the salons there in Paris. They befriended some of the more influential and highest-paid courtesans. They became pillars of the community of a sort. And then they opened businesses. Now, those businesses offered goods and services that were necessary to the women of Paris. They offered clandestine and safe abortion. They offered birth control. They had rudimentary protection from STDs. They had herbs that would ease menstruation pains. They offered midwifery. You know, that was the kind of thing you see everywhere. However, some of those women also offered fortune-telling and sorcery. They held seances and black masses, and they sold potions and poisons. Now, the poisons were the real concern here. I mean, they were linked to the deaths of thousands of powerful men, but the panic, what really gripped the people 
naturally, was the witchcraft. Now, it's not a new idea to point out that this panic and the hundreds of other panics like it we see in the ancient world have a lot more to do with feminine power and the agency of women than, you know, the devil. Witches all throughout history have given women necessary and safe medical care, the kind of care that they couldn't receive from doctors and at this point would not receive from doctors for at least 200 years. They provided places of safety and comfort for women in dangerous situations. And for women who had been forced into abusive and even potentially life-threatening marriages, they offered a way out. Poison. What we need to realize about this particular group of witches is that, in addition to the herbs and the midwifery and other services, they did offer seances and black masses. They did sell their potions and their sorcery. No, of course, none of that was real. That was just something that rich, aristocratic women were willing to pay a huge amount of money for. Sure, say some magic words, collect a giant bag of coin. Who wouldn't? But the poison was real, and they sold that as well. And that brings us to the most high-profile woman implicated in this coven of dark magic. La Madame de Montspan allegedly purchased love potions and even mind-control potions from these witches. And, if we can believe her accusers, more than once, La Madame de Montspan engaged in black mass on the grounds of the Palais Royal, right under the nose of the most Christian king, all of it to control him. The image of this famous voluptuous, fiery redhead stripping down and dancing nude around a fire was a popular one there in Paris. The rumors circulated, even writings and a few pictures of the event. I'm frankly pretty fond of the idea myself, but it really shook King Louis XIV. He took it very seriously. He justifiably was quite concerned about poison. I mean, 2,500 noblemen dead in the past decade? Yeah, he got some food tasters. In addition to that, he distanced himself from what he seems to have... Well, I don't want to say that he believed that Mossman was a witch, but... Well, we all know one of those women who's really into tarot and astrology and sacred geometry and, you know, magic potions, right? She probably can't put a curse on you, but isn't it better to be safe than sorry? Louis was disturbed by the reports of black masses, and though he didn't exactly throw Mossman out of the castle, he made it clear that she was no longer welcome in the politest way possible, of course. It was at this point that Louis began to noticeably abstain from some of the more sinful indulgences that he had enjoyed in his youth. This is when he began to gravitate more and more toward God. The 
Gallic Church had always been an influential organization, but at this point Louis began to promote his confessors and his bishops and even common priests and the nunneries. They became powerful institutions with the backing of the king. He was retreating from his sins into religion. In a lot of ways, the young King Louis followed in the grand tradition of those Frankish monarchs of old, those from the Merovingian dynasty. Those monarchs had been very fond of war and very good at it. Louis was as well. Those monarchs had engaged in concubinage, as did Louis, and when they eventually did adopt Catholicism, they did so in a self-serving fashion, a cynical fashion, to control the people more than from legitimate belief. But after his brush with the satanic rites of those women in his court, Louis appears to have begun to truly believe in all of it, from the divine right of kings all the way down. Now, Louis despite his image as the most Christian king, was, in his youth, not very good at the whole Catholic thing. He knew the forms, but not the theory. However, it's about this time that Louis, once again, took a wife. He did so in a secret ceremony, a ceremony that denied his wife any claim to royal privilege. She would not be the queen, merely the wife of Louis Bourbon, and it appears that that's what she really wanted. His new bride was quiet and pious and intelligent. I think, though, most important to our story, she really loved the king. And when I say his wife was often at his bedside, this is who I mean, the Marquise de Maintenon. She changed King Louis. Will and Ariel Durant wrote of their union, quote, It was the king's best and happiest union, the only one whose vows he appears to have kept. It had taken him almost half a century to discover that to be loved is worth monogamy. End quote. So the king, after his brush with the devil, was settling down and growing more religious. This is a good point to pause and look at where we are in the story of piracy, the overall story of piracy. At this moment, over in the West Indies, Governor Henry Morgan was outfitting a pirate hunter to hunt down specifically Lauro de Graff or Michel de Grammont. Down to the south, John Coxon and Peter Harris and Bartholomew Sharp and William Dampier and that whole lot, they were involved in the first Pacific adventure. But the next thing that we should talk about in the life of Louis XIV and the pirates, well, I'm just going to skip it. We did an entire episode about the War of the Reunions back in episode 54. I will, though, give a very brief recap because it is important. The heirs of Count Dracula and Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan under the flag of the Ottoman Empire, conquered Hungary and invaded Austria, the seat of the Habsburg Empire, remember, and the Ottoman Empire 
was winning. France, who notoriously had very good relations with the Ottomans that dated back to Barbarossa and the Barbary pirates, France took that opportunity to move on Habsburg targets in the West, Flanders and the Rhineland. They were Spanish Habsburg territories, but closely linked to the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Alliance that was formed to defend against the Ottomans that included Germany and Italy and Poland and Russia and Austria, an alliance that Louis was invited to but declined to join, that Holy Alliance defeated the Ottomans at the gates of Vienna in the largest cavalry charge in history. It's quite a story. Catholic Europe, at this point, stood proudly against the invaders, victorious at last. And when they turned around, they found King Louis XIV, kind of like walking in on a guilty dog, with his jaws wrapped around the Rhineland. That's a bad look for the king. Everyone was mad at King Louis. Now, what does all of this have to do with pirates, with pirates in general and our imaginary Huguenot sailors? What do poison and conspiracy and sexy witches and cavalry charges have to do with pirates in the West Indies? Well, there is a connection, and that is manifested in the person of King Louis. The most Christian king was caught in a web of witchcraft and satanic rites. Then, in the War of the Reunions, he was caught with his hand in the Habsburg cookie jar while failing to aid his Catholic brothers against the Ottoman invaders. Louis needed some good press. He needed some goodwill from his Catholic base. He needed to re-establish his bona fides with the Catholic population of France. He married that woman who he appears to have genuinely loved, who aided him in his salvation. But Louis chose to earn the respect of his Catholic people by following the example of another old Frankish ruler this time a Carolingian king, the Carolingian king, Charlemagne. The tradition that Louis chose to emulate was conversion by the sword. That story, the story of why those Huguenot privateers who had so willingly served in the Franco-Dutch War chose not to serve in the Nine Years' War, That story is going to wait until next time. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, those of you who have donated to the show directly through the website or PayPal, everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, and all of you who have left a rating or a review for the show. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you really need to do so. 
You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight